Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan here. I'm here with my co-host, Emily Jane Fox. Hello, Emily. Hi, Joe. Happy to have you back this week. I am happy to be back. We have had, uh, you know, it's a long, hot summer. It's the dog days of summer, and the dogs, in this case, are the, uh, you know, not the good kinds. They're the ones barking at you from the news mm. and making you sweat even more than you're already sweating. Um, but, you know, occasionally good news uh, comes over the transom like it has today. Or Bring it to us. You know, we just found out that... Um, the Attorney General of New, of New York has uh, uncovered what she alleges is uh, fraud in the NRA and has moved to dissolve the entire organization, which seems like mm-hmm. a radical and amazing development, considering and a politically significant one, considering they have been one of the most important funders of uh, the GOP. And, uh, you know, a massive arm of propaganda in this time of concern for gun violence, which Mm. we don't have to review because it's so obvious to all. But anyway, this is certainly going to be a huge um, narrative in this election now. I feel like this is going to introduce a whole new uh, level of much-needed debate in this uh, coming election cycle. So there's that. You know what's interesting about what you just said? A lot of it is interesting. I always find it interesting. But I, um, it, it makes me long for a post-election period, particularly if Joe Biden is president, when we can actually debate things like this, when we can have substantive policy change. So over the last four years, we haven't had any kind of substantive policy change. It's just been one fire after the other that's had to be put out. And we haven't really had the time and the chance and the ability to focus on gun violence, which is essential on really coming to debate what healthcare should look like in society, uh, debates over education, all the things that are normal political discourse, we haven't been able to even have a no. conversation about because you, things have been so chaotic. You could hardly argue that this has been the most anti-intellectual period of our adult lives in the national yes. discourse. I mean, basically, when there's a chance to talk about it, as when there were these horrible murders in a club in Florida, you mm. know, the president basically, um, you know, says more outrageous things in response to it, doesn't respond to it changes the subject, makes it about him, and then we move on somehow in this kind of unbelievable way. It's like, how could you not take this opportunity to, I mean, that's what you're supposed to do if you're a leader. And now we know that we're not dealing with a leader. And that's what, of course, what uh, this election is all about and why it's so important. 
Um, yeah. The, the, the other thing is, you know, we're, we're so engulfed in putting out this pandemic fire as we should be. That, that should really be the only conversation that we're having right now. And it really is the only conversation we're having right now. And this announcement this morning from the Attorney General of New York is an important one. And I'm sure it will get drowned out and forgotten about in no time because we're dealing with so much uh, other stuff that it feels more pressing. But I think the possibility that we will have a leader who can actually get this under control then allowing for a conversation about um, gun control and all sorts of other incredibly yeah. important issues. I wonder, though, is this is this going to ignite a, a culture war that will help President Trump? Well, I worried about that, and I have worried mm. about that. But um, And it's just the kind of thing that he would and is likely to do, right? He's longing for that. That's why I think that the, the protests when people were using the phrase – defund the police was was going to be good for him. I think that the conversation evolved and the pandemic got worse. And so those conversations have uh, sadly faded from our our constant drum as they once were. But, you know, that, that was going to be a real talking point for him. I think he would much rather focus on something like the NRA right. or police reform than, than a pandemic. If he does that, he will not – I think that uh, you know, making an argument for guns, the Second Amendment, and the NRA is not going to win him new voters. Mm, I feel like it's just going to underline what's already there, and it's not going to be a big appeal to women voters. Mm. Um, you know, If you've ever seen an NRA sticker on a pickup truck in America, the likelihood that there's a woman in the driver seems, seems rather low to me. Mm. Um, it is really about the kind of like – you know white men and white man anger that this sort of attaches to. Mm. Just to go back really quickly to your kind of concept of debate and whether we can have one and even think clearly about anything from day to day, mm. you know, one of the nature of the Trump era, I think, when we will look back, and the nature of fascism is that the tension of the entire country cannot seem to go away from just one subject. Yeah. You know, in North Korea, there's just one face everywhere and everybody has mm -hmm. to look at it. Well, look like mm -hmm. what we're dealing with. He's trying to simulate that through this making himself the sun, <laughs> which everybody has to look and be blinded all day long, right? Sure. I mean, that is sort of uh, what we've been dealing with and just what a relief it will be. And I think it'll be a relief for conservatives. I think it'll be a relief for everybody when they're not having to pay attention every single day to what's going on in the White House and at the national level. I mean, we've heard this, you know, people can't wait to be bored by Joe Biden. You know, they hope he's sleepy <laughs> because then we'll be able to think about other things, right? I think that I think that there's a real hunger, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, down the line, whoever it may be, to just have someone who you don't have to pay, constantly be watching and paying attention to. And that boring is okay and stability is okay and chaos is not something that you want to live in and, and sustain. I think that that's the biggest right. takeaway from this. Well, this week I've got Kurt Anderson that I'm, uh, who I've interviewed. So Kurt Anderson, he is a, a novelist and an author and a radio personality, but he's got a new book called Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. It's kind of a sequel to his last book, Fantasyland which was sort of about 
how, you know, non-factual information and conspiracies became the norm in American life. And he kind of traces the whole history. This new one is such a important um, kind of a primer for this election so that people can understand what this election is about beyond our daily headline experience. You know, every day we're paying attention to the latest uh, drama, uh, but we need to pan back. We need to get up up to 20,000 feet and see how did we arrive to this moment where, you know, Trump, who represents the go-go 80s capitalist caricature, right? How did we, how did he end up coming back into our lives as saving us from all the problems of uh, capitalism, like selling us on this trade thing and that he was going to change life for the middle class and the working class. Well, guess what? As this book makes clear, a lot of the problems uh, uh, that we're facing now have to do with the way in which the right and the GOP, starting with Reagan in 1980, re-engineered the economy so that the rich got richer, unions were crushed, there was no more guardrails on Wall Street, and everything that we see before us has happened. And mm. it's a very detailed history, and it's very useful as we go into this election to realize the crossroads that we are at, that we could continue going down this path of demagoguery and decline, or we have to reinvent our society and especially the economy to put a floor under all of these falling prospects of the poor and the working class who have nothing mm. there. They, the right convinced them that they didn't need it, or that that you know the tr it was going to trickle down. And of course, 2008 taught everybody that something was wrong, but nobody's known what to do about it. We just tried Trump. How does how's that working out? So this book is really takes you. It's about how who architected it, how it was architected, and ways of thinking about how to undo it. Mm, I can't wait to hear. I want to point out uh, some of you are going to listen to this and you're going to hear something you've never heard on this podcast or haven't heard for several months, which what? is uh, crickets, um, a breeze, a wind blowing. Uh, so what does that mean? This is the first podcast interview that I have ever done uh, in person. You know, uh, during this pandemic – we have wow. only done interviews over the phone and, uh, you know, using Zoom and all these technologies. Well, Kurt Anderson happens to live an hour from me. I drove to where he lives. We sat outdoors six feet apart and were able to actually conduct the interview in person. It felt like a breakthrough. What a wonderful thing. Also, how nice is it that it's recorded outside? Feels very summery to me. You know, you missed something I love getting to talk to you however I can talk to you. We're, t we're Zooming as we do this so I get to see your face. But when you're in person, particularly we've spent both of our entire careers getting to meet people in person and you read different cues and you don't have to worry about stepping over each other. It's just much easier to have a normal conversation in person as we've all experienced over the last couple of months. Doing an interview is really tricky when you're not in person and, and – if you're not doing interviews, I'm not sure you can totally appreciate what you miss out on. Uh, so, so I'm Absolutely. curious how much better you sound. Well, doing let's find out. Let's go to the interview, which took place live and in concert. Here we go. Kurt 
Anderson. Welcome to Inside the Hive. We find ourselves today outdoors and in person. This is the first interview I've ever done for this podcast in which I am in the same room with the person. Uh, well, and it's the first one I've done, uh, certainly for this book, probably will be the only one, and uh, the first professional experience I've had face-to-face IRL. Well, I have to say, you and I have uh, some history together, but let's put, let's put some full disclosure out right at the top. You used to be my boss, so therefore I'm obligated to uh, you know, throw some hardballs at you to inoculate myself against uh, corruption. Uh, yeah, or at, least, or at least fake ones, at least softballs in, in the, that, are, that are gussied up to look like hardballs. Yes, definitely. Right. Okay. Well, with, those, with that out there, uh, you, your last book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, uh, was posited uh, that the 60s revolutions, the liberation movements, the, uh, you know, the birth of the modern individual in American society engendered this revolution that indulged more freely in woo-woo thinking and conspiracy thinking and fact-free beliefs about reality that have led us to this moment where we have a lying reality TV show. Among other things, but yes, President, that, was, yes. that was a piece of the that was a, it was a, Yeah, it was, a, it was a thread in the book, uh, one that interested me a lot. And uh, so it's brought us to this sort of ludicrous moment. And now you have this new book, Evil Geniuses, the Unmaking of America, A Recent History, was a perfect sort of partner book to the last one. But it's interesting to me that, you know, the theory of the book uh, in itself posits possibly a conspiracy. <laughs> that, uh, you know, starting in the 1980s and possibly a little bit before the United States economy was totally re-engineered to favor Wall Street and big business and the 1% by this cabal of right-wing economic thinkers and big business interests. And so here we are, uh, you know, indulging in a conspiracy, but this one's real. Well, no, it's, uh, I have had that thought myself. I I realized halfway through this book um, that exactly that, that uh, although these are kind of Two volumes, as a friend of mine says, two volumes in the, in in your history of the fucking of America. Um, <laughs> th- they they are in conversation, and and one they are companion volumes. And yet, as you say, a large part of of the of Fantasyland is about the the the, the conspiracy mindedness that has always been part of not only the American way of thinking but of human way of thinking. Um, but got out of was one of the things that got out of control in and after the 60s and of course and I and I still believe that most conspiracy theories are preposterous let's uh, fast forward to now and look at QAnon for instance right um but I writing this book and doing the research and realizing how much of a coordinated strategic long game was involved by these uh rich right-wing people and, 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 and right-wing uh, activists, zealots, and big business. How it, you know, it, 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 it uh, I, I, we can talk about what is defined as a conspiracy, but this one certainly quacks, walks, and looks a lot like one. I mean, again, it was in plain sight 
most of us didn't pay very close attention or 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 put two and two and two and two and two together and to see the whole landscape of change that was being wrought uh, in the 70s and 80s and beyond. Well, you know, the impulse that people think of as driving the uh, anti-establishment right. countercultural right. figures, these guys got together. Let's talk, for yes. instance, about organized, the, you organized know, organized capital. That's right. And the Powell yeah. memo. Yes. These people yes. that we didn't know about, you know, I didn't anyway. Yeah. Lewis Powell nominated the Supreme Court, had the, before that, Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I, I had heard about the Powell memo some years ago, and and among a certain category of journalists and academics and lefties, it has been well known for 20, 20 odd years. Um, it, it was a revelation to me because just whether or not it was the original scripture and playbook for this long game that the economic right played to take over and re-engineer our system— in, in retrospect, given the success of that long game along exactly the lines described in 1971 in this 40-page memo, it's an extraordinary forensic artifact. So this guy, Lewis Powell, he was an establishment, democratic, moderate, decorous lawyer uh, of, of national repute uh, in Virginia, uh, worked for the tobacco companies and all kinds of corporate uh, clients and served on boards, just a, you know, normal establishment figure. He, like so many of people in that milieu and in, in C-suites and, and, and the rest in 1970 and 71, were freaking out about this anti-establishment, specifically anti-business sentiment that Ralph Nader and the general public were, were, were buying into, that it's unfair. Corporations are not to be trusted. Uh, all that, that, that what had begun in the New Deal had suddenly become, to their eyes, kind of extreme in the late 60s. Um, and what are we going to do to stop this? Maybe this talk of revolution is for real. Maybe the socialist revolution is nigh, they thought, in 1970 and 71. So Lewis Powell uh, in Virginia, age 60, whatever he was, was, was talking to a neighbor about this and ranting over bourbon, no doubt. And uh, uh, the neighbor happened to be an official of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and said, uh, Lewis, uh, why don't we at the Chamber of Commerce uh, commission you to write a memo explaining this and explaining your plan to, to, to stop this socialist left-wing Ho Chi Minh of America takeover of, of the American way of life and the destruction of free enterprise? Why, I sure will. <laughs> and he did that and uh, turned it in and, and again— and, and and was a couple of months later nominated by Richard Nixon to be a Supreme Court justice. That is interesting, and that's why Lewis Powell is famous, of course, but I'm not postulating that, for instance, as part of any conspiracy. No. But, so this, this, this moderate guy was suddenly immoderately hysterical about what was going on in this late 60s way, but, but because he was this skilled uh, lawyer and strategist and had been for 40 years— he laid out in this very skillful, lawyerly way, this is what we got to do. We got to create these think tanks to take over the intellectual uh, life as much as we can. We got to change the discourse in the media. We've got to organize business people and CEOs to be effective, uh, not just protecting their own company, but protecting and defending and asserting the, the importance of, of capitalism and profits. He, he, just, he just lays it out. 
and which was an extraordinary thing to do uh, at that time. And certainly given that what happened bears a striking resemblance to what he laid out in the summer of 1971 is amazing. He also had done I, I, one of the things I, you know, I, I don't really consider myself a, 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 a real historian in doing primary research, but I did discover this very, very little known uh, speech of his that preceded that memo, the Powell memo, as it's now called that he'd given a year ago, which is even more hysterical about, about, oh my God, the greening of America, it's crazy, they're going to take us down, we're going to be, he didn't quite say we're going to be put up against the wall and shot, but all but. Uh, so uh, th there he had it, and, and almost, it was secret for a year, uh, and then it was leaked to, some, to a newspaper columnist who talked about it, and it wasn't a big deal, but like, oh, look, this thing that Justice Powell wrote a year and a year and a half ago. But immediately, as soon as it became to that degree public, it became like this truly founding scriptural document for Charles Koch, for instance, and all of the Charles Kochs of the world, the, the libertarian and, and, and right-wing uh, 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 people and, and, and general CEOs were suddenly liberated by, oh, now we have a mission, we have a doctrine, we have a document, we have a plan, a battle plan. So that was the beginning. And then um, I, I didn't know either. And then, and then as I, I, I just, there was so much I didn't know as I did the research about uh, in so many different realms of how to think about how we should think or shouldn't think about antitrust enforcement and, and, and are monopolies good or bad. And, and, and just all across the board, the way the, the conventional wisdom was was pretty radically changed in America about fairness, basically, and about what the government should or shouldn't do in terms of making the economy fair for for most Americans. And it was, and they did it, and they and they and they and they changed it quickly. I mean, another memo that I knew nothing about was this one that was commissioned by a different right wing billionaire, Richard Mellon Scaife, in 1979, and was completed in 1980, that laid out even more extraordinarily, really, beat by beat, how the right, this same economic right, should try to have influence in, and to whatever degree possible, take over the understandings of the law and the judiciary and jurisprudence in America. Well, and and a year later, the Federalist Society is established, and the rest is history. And it, so, again, I, I, I am not—I'm not, <laughs> as you know, a conspiracist or a conspiracy-minded. But, but you—you—you you, you look at the evidence and the history, and it's hard not to see that there was a, a, this 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 extraordinary, brilliant uh, uh, effort uh, in many many different places to bring about this change. Also, this thing called the Business Roundtable. Right. Was was founded right then in the early seventies as well, you know the the the, the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce was always the big, the business, national business organization, but it consisted of thousands and thousands of companies, large and small, and was therefore everybody all, all kinds of businesses belonged, so it had that power, but it was kind of ineffectual because what does GE have in common with the Dave's widget shop right. over yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. So. The, 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 the CEOs of the biggest companies got together and said, no, we need just us, just the 200 right. CEOs of the biggest companies. And instead of just being some kind of public face of saying we, we're, we believe in business, we need to 
to get in there and fight the fight in Washington and lobby and threaten and 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 to be to be organized capital. Uh, right. Uh, well, my phrase, not theirs. And, and you've pointed out in the in the book the big kind of crucial year, watershed year, is 1980. Around the time that Reagan is going to come into office, he's going to be the affable face and the salesman, really, of this new concentration of business minds and fellow travelers from Milton Friedman to the Kochs to, you know, name the people you've heard of now because they've all came to fame and power since. But And it, the thing that really struck me reading your book was how important it was for them to do away with and ultimately crush the labor unions how this was really to take away the bargaining power of the worker ends up being kind of the most uh, important block in all of this. Because once you've got that out of the way, you know, off to the races. No, and I didn't, I, and I certainly at the time didn't realize it. And of course, I, I write about the history uh, of, of, of growing, uh, well, mutual contempt um, bet- uh, between uh, young people like me, new new young liberals coming of age in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and uh, labor unions and union members, the, and essentially the the you know educated white collar cohort uh, versus the blue unionized blue collar cohort, starting not over economic issues, of course, but over the war and the counterculture and all those late 60s issues. Uh, you know, we saw it, of course, in 1968 at the Chicago Democratic Convention of, of, of Mayor Daley and his police beating up protesters. But there were other incidents like that, and and, and that was the beginning of of a of a of a big political fissure that we are still living with and dealing with, obviously, uh, politically. And and I wasn't anti-union, but and I belonged to the Newspaper Guild at my first big journalism job at Time Magazine, but. But unions, eh, whatever. They're old. They're 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 racist. They're sexist. They're they're not. They're they were pro-war. Eh, unions. Yeah. So um, the that I call myself one of the liberal useful idiots. Um, uh, not this time to the communists, as that phrase was originally used, but to the capitalists. Um, sort of allowing, or or at least looking the other way, or shrugging about the crushing of the unions that took place very quickly and and very successfully. Uh, I mean, the ground was softened in the in the 70s, but then as soon as Ronald Reagan became president, um, crushed, really, truly crushed overnight one of the few labor unions, the Air Traffic Controllers Union, who had endorsed him for for the presidency, and 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 that really just gave the green light to big companies to 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 crush unions, to replace, to, to replace strikers and do the whole range of things that within, in that decade of the 1980s, I mean, the, the labor movement and the labor unions in the United States as a, as a key player at the table of the economy was, was just uh, undone. This is Inside the Hive. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, 
Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. You know, at this juncture, I'm thinking about when I came into the workforce, it's the mid-90s, at the dawn of the internet boom, and all my assumptions about economics, about the stock market, about money in general were received at that moment, right? I didn't, hadn't done a lot of deep thinking about it in any way. And so I came into the world thinking stocks go up good, shareholder value, it was getting frothy, everything was going crazy, and capitalism was taking on this like um, kind of uh, cool, right? And we were all a part of that. And you talk about useful idiots. We were all kind of indulging in it because it seemed like it was uh, the post-Cold War inheritance was that we won the game. All boats are rising. How were we wrong? Well, we were, we were wrong because we ignored the fact that the system, in all kinds of ways, many and probably most of them, too tedious or an obscure and abstruse and to have paid much attention to, the system was rigged, was re-engineered through tax codes, through regulation, deregulation, lack of antitrust enforcement, uh, uh, companies deciding, no, we're not going to give fixed pensions anymore, the, the, what happened to the healthcare industry and the resulting unaffordability of healthcare, on and on and on and on, all of which, all of which happened in from 19, let's say, 78 to 1998, but especially in the 80s, we ignored that because we were doing fine, yeah. basically, is the answer. I was doing fine. You, uh, you know, were doing fine, and we were enjoying ourselves, and this just seemed like the new reality. I mean, um, it, it, you know, and, and, and part of my reason for writing this book is because, you know, I'm old enough that... I at least experienced up to the time I was what twenty five, the old, the old system. I I, I was I I, I saw, uh, and now having done my research, I see that this was it was a different, fairer system, especially since the New Deal in the thirties, under which Americans were living. That was that was not only much fairer, much more economically equal, much more economically secure, but had become more so. And in 1976, had reached its top. In 1976, by the numbers and metrics, the United States was more economically equal than it had ever been. And, 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 and hey, let's celebrate. No, let's, let's twist all the dials so that it ceases to be so and starts becoming... Uh, as economically unequal and insecure as it was a century ago. Right. Well, and, you know, you and I were a part of a New York media world in which sort of sent up all these, like, um, power brokers who were getting super rich and living like pigs 
in the Hamptons and elsewhere, you know, we were both like on the margins of it and making fun of it. But, you know, even at the time we sort of were like, wow, this is, where does it end? This is crazy. And suddenly you started to see also, um, you know, working class people too, driving giant SUVs. And then there was sudden credit was all over the place. And there was just this, you know, crazy ripening of the, of the economy that was going on that turned out to be unsustainable. Right. And Democrats, and this is a really important thing you point out in the, in the book, just became really, they were playing on the ball field of the GOP every time they got into power, right? If they had Congress or if they were in the White House, Clinton was a triangulator who basically, you know, he played, paid lip service to their business values. And really accepted their, that, that social problems can only be solved by market-based solutions. That, that, that was key. I mean, basically, yes, Democrats and liberals on economics decided that they really didn't disagree with Republicans. I mean, they, they became essentially liberal Republicans after liberal Republicans ceased to exist. Uh, on economics. There, there, there was no party uh, uh, of the left on economics. And then, of course, the other important things that Democrats were distinctly and consistently to the left on, more or less, uh, matters of race and culture and uh, uh, sexuality and the rest, uh, uh, feminism and, and women's rights and civil rights, um, that became the way in which they were distinct from Republicans. Which, if you are a hypothetical uh, white working class person and you look at the parties and go like, hmm, they're pretty much the same on economics. They, they don't give a fuck about me or the fact that my manufacturing job has either been automated or shipped to China or whatever. Or choose, choose your legitimate reason to be an angry uh, 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 you know, person like that. And, and then you, you look, well, what, what else? Oh, how are they different? Hmm. How they're different is, is, is they're not, maybe, maybe the Republicans don't care about me really, but the Democrats really care about other people than me. Mm -hmm. So there you have, there, that's where we are politically. Um, you know, and meanwhile, my evil geniuses, the economic right, who, had the, who really kept their eye on the ball uh, and, and always keep their eye on the ball, Let's let the rich get richer. Taxes, low taxes are everything. Uh, the power of big, big business to do what it wants is, is, is key and paramount, overrides everything else. But to get what we want and to be politically successful, we're going to have to have as our allies this rabble, these white working class people, these racists. And that's, that started in the 1960s and, and hasn't stopped. And here we are with Donald Trump that Faustian bargain maybe has now, uh, uh, you know, it's come come due, and maybe uh, the evil geniuses are will now at least some of them go to hell. Uh, right. Continuing my Faustian trope, but we'll see. But that that's what happened, and and uh, and then people like me, I won't I won't drag you into this because <laughs> you're of a different generation. But uh, we were doing okay, and 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 we did accept that. Um, you know the 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 idea of of regulating business and breaking up uh, uh, 
business and 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 all the rest, all the all the whole New Deal menu and more of how the 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 balance could be maintained between workers and citizens and the power of big business uh, was was broken, and we allowed it to be broken. Be- those of us who allowed it, uh, who were doing okay financially, because we were doing okay financially, and and you know I I don't want to go into the hyperbole of because the rich people were giving us you know their their leftovers or their some crumbs, but effectively that right. is what happened. Right. You know. Right, and I don't think that everybody was paying attention to how the middle was getting hollowed out as the efficiencies of big business began to work their magic with automation and outsourcing and the rest. But 2008, the economic collapse, I feel like we're only now finally coming to the final, you know, chapter of the ramifications of 2008. I've always noticed that it kind of like superpowered the conspiracy thinking uh, that we've talked about. I mean, I remember when Alex Jones was on CNN, right, as a guy they would bring on to actually talk about things, and he's obviously a total nut job. And um, the one percenters and the Occupy Wall Street, and uh, this is this angry reaction, and it bifurcated into like Tea Party over here, Occupy over here, but it was always there, summering under the service, and you know that's where uh, Trump. Uh, comes in to exploit that. And and it's interesting that it was Trump and Bernie Sanders on the other side in a way, talking about trade, right? So I guess my question is, um, he took advantage of that. And the irony being that he was the caricature of the go-go 80s when all of this big business stuff blew up. And then now he's coming in to say, I'm going to fix, undo, or otherwise assuage all the problems that I represented. <laughs> well, no, he. one of the things he successfully ran on in 2016 was it takes a thief, effectively. Right. You know, you, you, I, 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 know that, I know how these people work. I own these politicians. I'll get rid of them. Which was, you know, in his, in, in the way that he, ways that he is brilliant, that was a brilliant thing to do. Um, and, and, but of course, he wasn't part of big business, never was part of big business. He, he's, he's a small, he's a small businessman right. who, who got big business that is to say banks and Wall Street, to, to fund his vanities and follies for many decades. And, and, and to me, I mean, this is a bit of a digression, but Donald Trump's business success, I'm making quote marks, uh, air quotes, is, is a, a uh, collateral damage of the, the hideous growth of Wall Street and the, financial, and the financial industry and its recklessness and its... The, the the fact that they again and again and again and and let's we'll see how the truth of that once once uh, gosh I do sound like Alex Jones don't I <laughs> see the, once, once the Deutsche Bank uh, 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 situation is 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 fully exposed but but the fact that these these banks these you know all the these reputable banks and institutions were providing loans to this guy they had to know was an untrustworthy buffoon yeah. is is evidence for the the degree of recklessness and self-dealing and all the rest that that had had that Wall Street had undergone in the 70s and 80s. And he one of his campaign ads in 2016 had Lloyd Blankfein the CEO of 
Goldman in it. Like as he, an evil villain. As an evil villain. Correct. And yet that, that's the other thing. I mean, Donald Trump ran. I mean, the Steve Bannon version of Donald Trump, which is to say, yeah, racist, xenophobe, bigot, all that. But... Yes, Medicare, we're going to keep your Medicare, keep your Social Security. It's going to be better than it ever was. We're going to spend trillions rebuilding the infrastructure. If he had governed like that, this unusual Republican who's, who's not going by the normal Republican tenants, um, if he had, he would, I, I believe that a lot of people on the left and liberals would have held their nose and say, yeah, not bad. And he'd have 65, 70% approval rating now. I really believe that. Yeah. Um, instead, what he did, because he's an idiot, uh, and, and because he understood that Republicans and the, were are, 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 are elected Republicans are 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 <laughs> quislings, and 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 that all they want, because you know the the prime directive of the economic evil geniuses is keep taxes low, keep regulation off of business, keep taxes low, keep regulation that's off it. of business. And he, so he gave them all that. Yeah. Oh, that's what you care about. Fine. Whatever. Yeah. That's how it works. Right. Well, another, uh, subplot to your book is the cultural effect of all this, uh, redistribution of wealth to the top and the politicization of it, the political economy of it which was that whereas there you call the 70s, the 60s and 70s, peak new, right? This is when we're, we had all gotten used to a level of just continual change, which is part of the American kind of impulse to reinvent constantly. Well, that began to slow down. And you noticed it from looking at a photograph of some people from the 80s recently, maybe in the last 10 years. Tell me about that. Well, and in fact, I, I noticed it and then wrote a piece about it for Vanity Fair magazine uh, that appeared in 2011. We'll link to that. Yeah. Um, um, no, I happened to see this picture in 2007, I think, in the New York Times. It was a profile of uh, Steve Rubell and his his partner um, uh, who had become, um, who, who started, of course, Studio 54 and had become big hotel impresarios. Anyway, it was it was a picture of them and their staff at the at Morgan's, which was this sort of uh, first, really essentially first fancy big boutique hotel in 1986. I think it started more or less. Anyway, all the, these waiters and attendants and bell people, a big crowd of attractive young people standing outside with with their bosses on a Manhattan street, and it was 20 years old. This picture, once well, that's an old picture. Almost nothing about any of them, the way they were dressed, looked, groomed, looked anything other than 2007. And I thought, that's weird, isn't it? Because, of course, for my whole lifetime, and then before my lifetime, things changed every decade pretty significantly. I mean, cars looked different. The way people did their hair and groomed themselves, dressed looked different, and, 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 and design looked different. And... And, and each decade had his own character. And I thought, well, that's weird. And, and, and so uh, I began trying to figure out, I, 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 I just became kind of obsessed with this. And why did that happen? And, 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 uh, and, and when I, I wrote about it, wrote an essay about it, I, I didn't really connect it very much um, to what had happened economically, at the, what was happening economically at the same time. And again, I'm not... I'm not such a conspiracist that I think the evil geniuses are genius enough or powerful enough 
to have contrived to 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 stop that kind of cultural to, to change, reverse engineer culture or something. No, however, I do think they were they were synergistic, and I do think that the fact that things after the eighties really uh, stopped the, the kind of after we we spent a decade or two just wallowing in nostalgia, which was a the degree of the wallow was new for America. Uh, this this stasis happened, and and I really do think that it has served the interests of the people who don't want big political and economic change to make people think without even thinking that they're thinking, but just oh no, things don't really change. It's the same. Listen to the same music. You know, this new singer is not so different than the same than a singer that was twenty years ago. And what's that? What 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 has happened so radically new since? hip-hop let's say yeah. as an example in pop culture mm-hmm. of a truly new thing in the 70s and 80s and then uh but what's been as big as that and 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 and, and you can go through the whole realm of culture and think like hmm like that's weird and again i mean i i i so in my uh while i'm not a conspiracy theorist i did i am a a, a seeker of unified theories of uh of existence <laughs> and, I, and so I, I did i i do in evil geniuses connect uh, nostalgia and this strange cultural stasis uh, to to the, the the bigger economic and political changes that happen, and 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 it really is unprecedented. I mean, not only I mean, America was about the new. Modern life is about this constant novelty in all realms, and instead, the novelty of the last several decades has been in 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 the digital realm. Sure, but very little uh, else in the culture right and it almost serves as like a uh, a funhouse mirror of everything that we already had like a giant archive of uh, you know constantly coming at us this is inside the hive hey john favreau here there's no shortage of political takes in 2024 but quantity doesn't cut it we need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. You and I have talked about this in the past, but... You know, we talk about the 20th century being this kind of anomaly of a monoculture in which you had a narrow band of media through which everything was coming. And a lot of us uh, experienced all these newnesses you're talking about through that, you know, through the distribution of sound and image and, and news and information and politics and the rest. But And as the Internet came along and fractured that, you know, you talk, and I made this parallel reading your book. I was thinking... You're saying that these, uh, you know, right-wing uh, forces, they tried to de-engineer the New Deal and take us back to before uh, the Depression, you know? And in doing so, ended up exposing us to similar problems, by the way. And, but also back to a pre-media time when, when you have a fragmented media, and it's more like the pamphleteering late 19th century now than it was 
20 years ago. Like we reversed that too. It, it's the, that's a good point. And, 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 uh, and I think in fantasy, I wrote about the, the, that media part of it, which is, which is so true. I mean, when we think often, I talk about pathological nostalgia, which is, you know, we're all nostalgic for something, but, but, but America and, certain kinds of Americans have become pathologically nostalgic uh, and, and that drives a lot of our politics. But, and, and when we talk about that, it's often, oh, they all want it to be the 50s again. Oh, they want it to be the 50s again. No, the 50s were pretty good except for the racist, sexist, misogynist part of it. I mean, economically, the right. 50s were good. They, want, they, my economic evil geniuses, want it to be, as you say, like before there was a federal government, before there was income taxes, before there was a public health system. And indeed, before there was um, uh, a mainstream instance, media, news, mainstream media. <laughs> I mean, the, the, again, the newspapers, big newspapers that you know dominated uh, American media for a century, were the result of, of of business constraints. Which is to say, to sell as many newspapers as you could in a given city. You couldn't be left wing or right wing. You had to kind of appeal to, had to have a big tent and appeal to everybody. And uh, the, yes, with with cable television and 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 talk radio and unregulated talk radio and certainly the internet, the the that business constraint was no longer there. And 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 uh, um, uh, the, the the idea of the the good side of mainstreamness, which is that most mostly just untrue craziness uh, uh, could be kept out of the, the mainstream, that, that, that started disappearing, and here we are. Um, I mean, no question, there were all kinds of bad things about the mainstream and, 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 and uh, dissident opinion being uh, stigmatized and kept out of it, no question. But we didn't have QAnon, Right. Uh, for instance, yeah. uh, back when, uh, uh, you know, there were only three networks and two news magazines and a couple of national newspapers. Right. Well, and I thought a lot about, um, you know, the Ross Douthat's recent book makes a kind of case that we've reached decadence yes. from our success. Yes. And In which he quotes Fantasyland uh, at length. Uh, well, and, and that makes perfect sense to me because this is all of a piece and I... One of the things I love about your writing and your books is that you articulate things that I have been been floating around in my mind as I look out. I'm like, yeah, why is the culture seeming to be a little bit static? Why, you know, I'm a big music fan. Like, why is music not as impactful as it once seemed? It doesn't have the centrality to the culture. Well, the culture is no longer central. It's been fragmented. And it's sort of reflected the economic thing as well in that... Um, everybody uh, now has the option to go into their little silo and then QAnon being one of the wacky ones, right? Um, I don't know what I'm saying with this, but basically, I, I mean, I agree. I'm, I'm glad it wasn't just me. Yeah, yeah. It was being, the, getting to some place like that. Yeah, but, you know, the decadence yeah. is, is a no, thing it, that we've been, uh, we've, you know, and Trump could not be a more glaring, uh, you know, symptom yeah. of that decadence. Well, and 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 when you say decadent, I think of I think of capitalism as it's as it's practiced in the United States uh because I, I you know, 
give me a free market like the Nordic countries and I'm good. Yeah, I'm yeah. good. I mean, and by the way, they are free market systems. They're not socialist countries. They're right. free market countries. Right. And you with, make that point in the book. And with, a, with, a, with great social democracies and, and the systems. But, but the f- term that so many people have been using the last couple of decades and more and more lately is late capitalism, which, of course, implies that it's about to die. Um, which I, I, I think is there's a there's maybe a, this version there's yeah. a sort of wishful uh, thing but it is a, definitely a decadent capitalism in America no question I, th- I, I think that that's to me a more precise and true phrase and, and doesn't suggest that it's going to collapse in some miraculous uh, you know uh, it, it's way because it's right. late I mean uh, the I've been hearing the phrase late capitalism for a long time, you know, and you're, you're kind of, it's like waiting for the end of the world when some prophet says the world is about to end. Right. Uh, but, you know, it is, it is absolutely uh, uh, a decadent, and of course, and, and decadent in specifically in, in, in the uh, story of evil geniuses, that we have become this kind of, not North American, but traditionally Latin American kind of oligarchy where only the rich are getting richer and building real and 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 uh, figurative gates to keep all the peasants away. Right, yeah. Well, and I think during this pandemic, you know, when we saw uh, Geffen on his boat out in the uh, Caribbean or wherever he was, you know, people immediately were struck by that as a sign and symptom of, uh, you know, the separation of the haves and haves nots. Um, so, you know, one thing to point out, let's just get into the, um, slivers of hope section of our conversation here. You know, the, um, you point out a really interesting thing in the book that 25 years ago, there was a poll taken. They asked people, do you want the government to do more for people or less? And 62% at the time said, uh, you know, no, we don't, it's like, we don't want more government. We want less. It was a part of the Republican and the choice was more government to do more or let people and businesses take care of their own problems. Exactly. And now it's flipped, more or less. 58% would like to see the government do more. And you start to explore whether we're at an inflection point. Certainly it looks like it. I mean, we, you know, the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world and the Andrew Yangs have been on national stages delivering messages that you would never have heard 10 years ago. Correct. And that's a radical thing. And, 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 you know, that's what Trump's will exploit the fear of that. But it, it may be that there are options are narrowing at this crossroads uh, between more of this, uh, you know, kind of autocratic demagoguery and actually solving the problem. Well, and, and w- I mean, the hopeful possibilities that c- coming out of the pandemic and uh, the, its economic consequences is sane people, sensible, reasonable people will look and say, no, hmm, we really do need an effective government to uh, deal with not only huge one-off challenges like this, but uh, both economically and in a public health sense. But no, we really do need government. We're not all on our own. Business can't do it by itself. Uh, and and uh, it, it, to me, it's, it's both a case study the, the reaction of the Trump administration and the right t- from the get-go of, no, 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 open up right away, open up right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with it. Keep the stock market going. Yeah. And, and down the line, they, they, they just played from their playbook of, right. of, uh, of, of what they, how they've been uh, privileging and prioritizing 
stock prices and corporate profits above all else. I mean, th these last six months have been just an extraordinary case study in that. Now, I hope that will be clear th to, to more people than ever that, um, wait a minute, uh, they really, not only do they not, as the poll, as the survey question often has it, care about people like me, they really care only about their narrow economic interests. Period. End of story. So, uh, and the question is, is can the, the various other fissures, social, cultural fissures in, in, in America that uh, all kinds of people, especially Donald Trump and the Republican Party, um, uh, exploit politically, can those be put in abeyance enough to, to create a good working majority of people who can uh, be activated politically in their own economic interests? Right. And, and the economic interests, by the way, of, of America, of the economy. <laughs> Again, racism and misogyny and patriarchy aside, the 50s and 60s and 70s are, are, are a model, if we had that economy now, the growth, the, the, the fair, the equitable uh, arrangements of, of how the wealth was shared, my God, we, you know, literally, we, we were as equal back in the day as, as, as some of the Scandinavian countries are now. Uh, it would be great. And, and so it's not, it's not really radical. And we had these enormously higher tax rates on the rich, Hmm. Didn't seem to hurt growth, did it? No, it didn't. And, and two things you point out in the book that are, I would say, interesting tea leaves to read is one is that the Business Roundtable, which is one of these big business groups as part of the cabal, right, or was invented at the dawn of the cabal, really, uh, you know, kind of came out in 2019 kind of advocating for more responsibility to the workers. Like, uh-oh, maybe this isn't going to go so hot for us if we keep going in this direction where we haven't corrected in any way. And you point out the Financial Times this last spring said about the pandemic, virus lays bare the frailty of the social contract. Now, this is the first election I can remember in which we've ever, I've never heard it before, come up, the social contract. We're rethinking the entire thing. So tell me a minute for a minute about you talking here about the Alaska model, because it's an interesting thing because it, it gets to a lot of other conversations. But Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Andrew Yang, during his uh, perfectly great presidential run, he was probably not ever going to be nominated for the presidency. But to get the conversation going, not only about universal basic income, but about how AI and automation are going to continue eliminating jobs. They just are. And this is different than the other industrial revolutions. And there's, there are not going to be enough jobs that it makes economic sense for people to do, period, end of story. How are we going to deal with that? So, um, uh, and, and I was, I was I, I, the fact that that was not regarded as crazy and that like People, Republicans as well as Democrats in polling said, yeah, universal basic income of some kind might be necessary. Fantastic that that is now legitimately on the table. So Alaska, 50 years ago, they had this gigantic uh, oil strike in the north slope of Alaska, and all the oil companies wanted to drill there. And Alaska said, okay, you can do that, uh, but we're going to charge you these, um, we're going to get a share of the these gigantic billions of dollars of oil revenues you're going to get. 
And the then Republican governor, since Alaska has almost exclusively Republican governors and is a very Republican state, decided, uh, you know, uh, on the advice of this libertarian socialist economist who worked at the University of Alaska, we're going to give that money directly. We're going to give a large chunk of that money, guaranteed, amend the Constitution of the state to give a portion of that money to every individual in Alaska, man, woman, and child, no matter what, no strings attached. So we have had, Alaska has had a universal basic income. Now it's small. It's not of the, of the it can't make, let you live, you know, but it's thousands of dollars, often several thousands of dollars, at least a thousand or two dollars a year to every man, woman, and child. So if you've got a family, five, 10, 15, 20 grand every year, yeah. That obviously makes a huge difference in people's lives. So we've had this, this, this incredibly successful experiment. Now, ironically and <laughs> unfortunately, it's based on fossil fuels, and that's a whole other uh, conversation. But the principle is the thing, is that there, are, there is social wealth. Alaskans decided, hey, this is our oil. We should, we, should, we should all each benefit from this rather than have it just vaguely go away to and whoever. You, and you point out in there that it, um, there was an uptick in um, women entering the workforce because they could afford child care. Yes, and, 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 there, are, and, and there, are, are, there are also studies about uh, childhood health that got better and all kinds of things. And, by the way, it's unclear exactly to what degree the—, the Alaska fund, Alaska permanent fund is responsible. This thing that has given every, every Alaskan thousands of dollars a year, every year, no matter what, for the last several decades, uh, is responsible. But back then, when it started, Alaska was one of the most economically unequal states in the union. Today, it is one of the top one or two least unequal uh, states in the union. So, hmm. yeah. uh, so but, but, but really, I think it's important that it, it, it here is this, conservative, Western, ultra-entrepreneurial, individualistic state that has had and loves and would not ever give up this social welfare payment yeah. and, and understands that there is such a thing as social wealth, in this case oil, but it could also be allowing polluters, charging polluters to pollute or, or, or charging internet companies for all the work that the government did inventing the internet or, or any number of things. Well, Social those were wealth really interesting thing. observations to me. I hadn't heard them before, but, it, and you, uh, you know, God bless you, you read Hillary Clinton's memoir. You, there was a little uh, thing in there where she said she considered what if we, you know, made uh, the fossil fuel industry pay uh, based on how much co2 emissions they have and then give it away to people no, yeah no she specifically said oh uh, you know uh, basically copying alaska on a national scale in some way and and I, she wasn't entirely clear whether it would just be fossil fuel or how how, how the, where the funding would come but yes and she and bill and her campaign decided no no we couldn't make the numbers work and so uh, maybe that's too bad maybe i would have won um uh mm -hmm. but you know it's it's it is it is beginning to think, you know, the outside the box in these radical ways that in this case isn't so radical because, you know, as as Justice Brandeis said, we in this in the laboratory of democracy, we've had one of our states prove that in this way, in this, you know, it 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 has worked just fine. Yeah. 
And just as an aside, the other thing you pointed out that was interesting is that how much the government is involved in the in the invention of things like the Internet and receives no return on that investment. And you liken it to, you know, we built a highway and then we let a bunch of like uh, young college kids put tolls up on it and collect all the money and we don't get any of it. So I'm thinking now we're we talk, we're talking about this inflection point and the importance of this election. I just want to go on record saying your book is a great primer for thinking about what the meaning of this election is. How, look at the big view. Let's go to 20,000 feet. Let's look at the last 50 to 75 years and think about where we want to go from here. You know, we're so caught up in the daily news cycle and we're boring into every little Twitter war and dumb thing that Trump says. But let's back up a minute here and think about which direction we want to go. Apocalypse and demagoguery or reinvent the country and go somewhere optimistic and sunny. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think that I hope that Joe Biden will bring up uh, in this election is something you point out. You just mentioned it in passing, but I just know that it's going to be a thing, which is that all these people are out of work right now. And when the corporations go back, they're going to use this as an excuse to reduce their workforce, not hire more people. They're going to see how efficient everything was without all these workers. And there's going to be even more unemployment and more people without jobs and without security. A floor has to come under these people. We've got to reinvent the floor, right? A new New Deal has to be created. And, and absolutely right. And, and when I started writing this book, just after I'd finished Fantasyland almost four years ago, um, I, I wanted it, my, 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 my plan, and, and bless them, Random House agreed that, okay, I'll turn it in the beginning of 2020, and we'll get it out quickly, so it can be around, not, so it can be p part of the election conversation. I think you're exactly right. I think it is, this is a, a, an inflection point moment, and Andy Grove, the great uh, founder of Intel, who, who, who popularized the idea of the inflection point in, for businesses and, 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 and groups and societies and organizations made the point that inflection point can go take you to the stars or down to the bottom right. and that's where we are i really do because i'm not without hope i i you know if we if we re-engineer our re-engineered badly re-engineered uh economic system uh, the sky's the limit with AI, with automation, with all of it. And to their credit, I mean, people like Mark Zuckerberg, who, not to <laughs> defend him or Facebook, except he and other Silicon Valley people, at least are honest enough to have made the leap and, and, and understand where technology is going in terms of work and, 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 and the larger economy to, to say, yeah, something like universal basic income is going to be necessary. That's that we are the the old the old way of just give business whatever it wants and screw the people who who the losers. That just isn't going to work. And and so at least he and they, uh, uh, in their in their engineer uh, Spockian way, uh, understand where this is going and that a solution that will look radical is going to be necessary. Right. And so we have Joe Biden who's sort of like, you can put the radical juice into the old Coke bottle and, uh, you know, or... He, he's Captain Kirk. He's okay. Captain Kirk, that's right. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, I will, I, you know, let's cross our fingers and hope, A, that he's elected, in, but and B, in my, I believe that he is enough of a, you know, 
he he wants to do right. He wants things. He wants people to be happy. He he does. I mean, he is God knows beset by nostalgia to an extreme about how better life was in Scranton when he was a kid and all that. But it was. Uh, right. or, and 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 so if if he he also is obviously a consummate politician and and you know if he if if people and specifically democrats are pushing him to the left he's not going to resist right you know he is not so i i'm hopeful about what could happen um uh, uh in his administration and beyond but it really to your point about you know uh short term like what happened today what did trump say today or what's going to happen in the election in november we really have to think we have to obviously toggle between thinking short term win this election and long term. Well, for what purpose other than to prevent uh, a, a, a fascist autocracy? Yes, that's important. But 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 truly, if we if beyond that and beyond not you know getting uh, uh, unapologetic racists out of the White House and all the obvious things about Donald Trump. Let's not think, as I'm afraid Joe Biden has, that um, it's just about Trump, that that there hasn't been a big problem of which he, I, anybody who calls themselves a Democrat, mostly, have, have been have been part of, of not understanding how what happened to the economy and how things went bad didn't just happen. It was part of a set of plans and a very long game. And and. You know, I, the, the the things I talked about in Fantasyland of the magical thinking and conspiracy theories and delusions and all that, which has been part of the American character forever, um, th- th- and that's gotten out of hand and it's a big problem. And it, in a way, it can't be fixed. It can be stopped. It it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. It, we we can fight and need to fight to sort of say no more, no more. Uh, take QAnon off uh, Twitter, for instance. But this is fixable. This was this other way uh, 40 and 50 years ago and can and then was changed and it can be changed back as long as we have a democracy, as long as we have politics. Um, uh, this can be fixed. So I'm hopeful in a way that I really wasn't once I came to the conclusions I came to about Fantasyland. Uh, uh, but, but in terms of the evil geniuses and, and, and what they have wrought, well... They wrought it. And, and, and indeed, as you know from reading the book, I think we who are not of that ilk can look at what they did and, and, see, and, and copy it in, to some degree and, and see what a long game they played and how they kept their eye on the important ball and all these other things that like, man, they did it. And, and if we want to turn the United States of America into a decent, fair social democracy, well, you know, uh, th- there's a lot to learn from from the history of how they did it the other way. And that playbook in reverse, uh, which you can read, is called Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. I'm gonna, It's going to take a long time for me to digest it. It's like incredibly filled with amazing facts that just sort of gobsmacked me and kept me rolling along, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I think it's an important book. Curry Anderson, thanks for coming on to Inside the Hive. It's been a pleasure to be outdoors, and our our third party was the cricket. And the breezes. And the breezes. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. 
And that's our show this week. Thanks to my guest, Kurt Anderson. And of course, Emily Jane Fox, my lovely co-host. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. And thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, especially our producer, Bob Tabador. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And we'll see you next week. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.